Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Ben Jedlovic. Ben is the Vice President at Baseball Info Solutions and co-author of The Fielding Bible, Volume 3. You can give Ben a follow on Twitter at Ben Jedlovic. That's J-E-D-L-O-V-E-C. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. No problem. It's an honor. Well, Ben, we're going to discuss defense and defensive metrics a lot today. But before we do, tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Ah, good question. Um, well, growing up, I always enjoyed playing baseball, watching baseball on TV. And uh, at some point, uh, I kind of realized that you could get a job in this kind of industry and uh, in doing the, the numbers side of it, which always appealed to me as well. And I... Um, you know, started working towards that in high school and in college, and uh, I got fortunate enough to, to find a, an excellent opportunity here at BIS a little bit after graduating from, uh, from Rice University, and I uh, haven't looked back. It's been fantastic. Where did the interest in defense come from? Um, well, you know, defense has kind of been one of the, the new frontiers in baseball analytics. I think over the last few decades that um, offensive pitch and pitching have been covered, um, you know, those are, are being more, maybe a little bit more impactful um, overall in the grand scheme of things. But defense was long considered one of the areas where um, where there wasn't much that you could do. In fact, I think Branch Rickey, um, there's a famous Branch Rickey quote saying, there's nothing anybody can do with defense based on the data that they had available. And, and I think that was largely true. I think, um, but as the industry has evolved, I think it's turned in a direction that uh, we've started collecting better information, better data. We've tracked a lot more detail about batted balls and where they land and how successful uh, certain fielders are at catching them, and how unsuccessful others are at catching them or, uh, or making, you know, fielding the ground balls, making the plays at first base. So, uh, I think the data has improved, and that's really driven a lot of the interest and the uh, the new defensive metrics. I mentioned Baseball Info Solutions in your intro. Tell me a bit about what the company does and how it came to be. We are a baseball statistics data and uh, analysis company. We, uh, we collect a lot of information. We uh, also analyze the information, and we sell both the data and the processed analytics to a variety of customers from teams. Um, we have... Uh, over half, between half and two-thirds of major league teams we work with in some form or fashion. Uh, we also work with media companies such as ESPN. We work with fantasy companies. Um, we've been in business for about 11 years, and uh, it was uh, co-founded by John Dewan and Steve Moyer, who had worked together back in uh, at Stats Inc. in Chicago in the, uh, in the early to mid-90s and into the late 90s, and had a lot of success building that company. And um, both left Stats Inc. at various points and uh, got back together and, and started this company. And we've been going strong ever since 2002. Well, let's start with a very broad question of how Baseball Info Solutions measures defense. Mm-hmm. So we have a number of just um, ways that we do that. Um, our primary and probably most famous metric that we are, are primarily responsible for is defensive runs saved. And uh, that has eight different components of defense the biggest of which is driven by the plus-minus system, uh, which was published uh, first published by John Dewan in the first Fielding Bible book back in 2006, the spring of 2006. And the crux of the plus-minus system is taking um, batted balls, looking at exactly where the ball was hit and how hard it was hit, the characteristics of that batted ball, looking at how often... Uh, a fielder at a given position makes that play, converts that ball for an out, whether it's catching it on a fly ball or a line drive, or uh, 
fielding the ground ball and throwing over to first base and getting the out successfully. Um, taking comparing the uh, the league average to individuals and their performance um, on individual plays and then adding those up over the course of the season. Uh, so that's really the heart of the defensive run save system and and the primary method that we use to evaluate defense um, at BIS. So, although there are others, you know, we can do any number of things with the data set. So other people have have um, acquired our data, um, licensed our data from us, and done their own defensive metrics um, with uh, a lot of similar conclusions. UZR is another popular defensive metric. How does DRS differ from UZR? Uh, there's a few subtle differences. The overall uh, point and the idea behind them is is more or less the same. And um, I think John, when he was developing the plus-minus system, um, and Mitchell Lickman behind UZR, I think they had a lot of the same influences and a lot of the same ideas um, back when uh, they were developing these statistics. Um, John has always been interested in defensive metrics dating back to his days at Stats Inc. Uh, and zone rating and the information they started collecting there. And, um, you know, he's really just built on it and, and doubled and tripled and quadrupled his efforts since then. Um, but, uh, but there are some subtle differences that you allude to. There's, um, there's a few differences in the, the data that we're using. Uh, Defensive Run Saved is now using our batted ball timer information. So that includes uh, measuring ground balls, their uh, velocity through the infield, their average velocity through the infield, as well as hang time on fly balls and line drives. And we feel that using those pieces of information, we're able to um, greatly improve the quality of our of our objective defensive metrics. We're using a more objective, more continuous number uh, as opposed to a, a more categorical hard, medium, soft, and and a classification of line drive versus fly ball versus uh, the different trajectories you could break that into. Um, so that's one uh, difference that's emerged over the last few years when we started collecting that information. We also have a few other components um, in our system, such as what we call good play and misplay runs saved, that looks at how often a first baseman scoops the ball out of the dirt over at first base. Uh, I see above or below average in that regard. How often do catchers block pitches in the dirt? Um, a few miscellaneous, uh, several other miscellaneous categories like that, um, as well as some pitcher and catcher defensive components. And I know UZR and, and DRS, defensive run saved, have a, a number of different miscellaneous adjustments that, uh, that aren't applied exactly the same. But I think those are the, the major differences from my, my perspective here. How do you actually go about applying the data? Or how do you acquire the data? Um, do you have people watching every game? And are they marking plays down with their own eyes? Is it, a, is it fed into a system? How does it all work? Uh, I think you've got it. Um, we have a crop of video scouts, which we recruit every year. Uh, these are trained professionals, former players in high school and college um, who have an eye and a, a passion for baseball. And they're trained to collect this information. They're watching the, the video and they're plotting uh, hit locations. They're recording what happens on the play. They're identifying certain things that they see on every play. And uh, then we're processing that our I, our IT team has a uh, customized software that then translates the information um, from that software into our database. And once it's in our database, we can we can go to work with it in terms of analytics and, and sending it out to clients. Let's go position by position for a bit. Let's start with catchers. It seems like catchers might be the hardest to measure, the hardest position to measure defensively. Uh, how does DRS go about measuring a catcher's defensive value? 
Uh, you're right. There's been a lot of mystery about measuring catcher defense. I think we've made some good strides, but by no means are we uh, we all the way there. We admit that there's a there's a ways to go, especially with catchers. We have we have three primary components, actually four components now for catchers. Um, the first is stolen base runs saved. So we look at how often opposing runners attempt to steal against a particular catcher, and how often they're successful as well. Um, and we actually we take into account the history of the pitcher who's on the mound because uh, what we've our research has suggested is that it's not just the catcher who has a significant amount of control over the running game. But the pitcher actually has even more ca- more control than the catcher does over the success rate, the frequency, and the su- success rate of stolen bases um, against a particular uh, pitcher catcher combination. So we factor out the pitcher and we we take a look at the catcher from that perspective. We also have what we call adjusted earned runs saved, which um, which is our attempt at ha- at measuring the catcher's ability to handle his pitcher, whether he's calling a good game, framing pitches, um, all of the little miscellaneous things that a catcher is trained to do um, that are hard to measure, frankly. And we, we make uh, several adjustments in there for parks, for quality of pitcher, that sort of thing, that uh, in the end uh, give us a, a run saved component um, we also have two more. We measure a catcher's ability to field bunts, uh, which turns out to be not a huge difference from one catcher to another over a course of a year, but it can, it can add up over time. And the last one is on good plays and misplays runs saved. As I alluded to earlier, uh, we include catcher, uh, blocks of pitches in the dirt. And that's the largest component of good play, misplay run save for catchers. Although there's a few others such as, um, when a catcher has a play at the plate, we record certain good fielding plays um, and, you know, picking a ball out of the dirt, you know, a low throw, kind of like a first baseman handling a low throw in the dirt. We also evaluate catchers in that regard um, when they're receiving a throw from an infielder or from an outfielder. So uh, those are our four uh, run save components for catchers. It's the stolen base run save, the adjusted and run saved, the bunts and the good play misplay run save. How are you able to quantify pitch framing and the value of pitch framing? Uh, we take a, a less direct approach. We don't look at it on a pitch-by-pitch basis as of right now. Um, we look at the the performance of an individual pitcher with one catcher versus other catchers that he's caught over the course of that season. And, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of noise that goes into there that we regress our information. Um, we don't give it full weight because we acknowledge that there's a lot of noise there and that, that, that noise is not something the catcher is fully responsible for. But what we found when we've tested that particular piece of, um, of our run save metric is we found that there is a, a decent amount of consistency year to year, uh, for catchers. If you split out, um, if you take split seasons, if you take the even years and the odd years, uh, over six years, we, we did a study in the Fielding Bible where we took um, six years of data. We said in the even years and the odd years, how real, well do those subtotals correlate with each other? It actually correlated a lot uh, a lot better than I frankly was expecting. Um, it correlated fairly well. Um, that indicates that we're actually measuring something with that particular metric. Um, so that reaffirms just kind of the value of, of the approach that we're taking. And, and it's... As you, you know, back to your original question, it's it's a less direct way of measuring pitcher framing or catcher framing of individual pitches, but it also incorporates uh, you know it's more broad and incorporates more components of catcher defense. 
baseball prospectus uses a different defensive system. Um, they had a piece recently on Jose Molina, basically calling him the Babe Ruth of pitch framing, suggesting that he might be worth 50 runs saved by his pitch framing abilities. Do you see a catcher having that sort of defensive value just from pitch framing? It's hard to imagine that something of that magnitude, I'm not saying it's impossible, and, and it's, I know that they do a lot of great research over there at Baseball Prospectus. Jose Molina um, does show up as a, a very good defensive catcher in our system, especially in that adjusted earn run save component. Um, so I, I do think that Molina is indeed a valuable defensive catcher in that regard, and I think he saves the, his team some value um, you know, with his ability to handle the pitchers and frame the pitches. Um, 50 runs saved, I think uh, that's that's such a, a high magnitude that I think that we would have a, an easier time measuring it, frankly, if, um, if all of that 50 runs was completely attributable to a catcher. I think we'd be able to, to measure it a lot better by now um, through other means of, of calculation. Uh, I think that it's entirely possible that there is 50 runs of difference on the plays that Molina has caught this year. But I think it's there's a lot of factors that are really hard. And I think the, the baseball prospectus guys will admit this. There's a lot of factors that are really hard to tease out and isolate the individual catcher's impact compared to the pitcher's impact, the umpire's impact, the batter's impact. Um, and when you do all of those, uh, it's a hard nut to crack, so to speak. Uh, and it, it, what they're doing is great work. I applaud it. How about pitchers themselves? How is DRS measuring a pitcher's defensive value? Uh, we've got a couple of components for pitchers. We have um, a stolen base run saved, where we're looking at their ability to control the running game, as I talked about with the catchers before. Um, pitchers have a substantial uh, control, substantial level of control over the running game, the success and the frequency of stolen bases uh, while they're on the mound. Uh, the next component is the plus-minus system, looking at how well the pitcher field is, fields his position, frankly. So if, um, you know, you've got Mark Burley out there who gobbles up anything anywhere near the mound, that saves his team a number of runs over the course of the year. And that'll show up in his ERA, for instance, but it won't show up in something like his FIP or um, some of the defensive independence statistics, but uh, it's certainly something that he has control over. And in fact, pitcher statistics, pitcher defense has shown itself to be very reliable year to year that pitchers are consistently good or consistently bad defensively. Um, and the last piece, well, two more pieces we have. We also evaluate pitchers on bunts in addition to just ground balls. And lastly, we also evaluate good plays and misplays runs saved. Um, one interesting component for, for pitchers on good plays and misplays is their, um, their job to cover first base when there's a ground ball hit into the hole that the first baseman fields. Uh, there's certain pitchers, and you can probably think of certain examples, who are notorious for not getting over there in time, and it costs their team runs over the course of the season. One little base runner in turn comes around to score. Um, you know, that can add up if you do it a couple of times a year. So those are our four components for pitchers. Is Burley's defensive value accounted for in wins above replacement? Uh, well, wins above replacement is one of those statistics that there are several different versions of. Um, in, uh, in the Fangraphs version, I don't believe... Don't quote me on this, but I don't believe the uh, the wins above replacement on Fangraphs con- currently has pitcher defense factored in. Although I could be wrong about that, I believe on Baseball Reference that it is. I know that they use our defensive run save directly in their wins above replacement calculation for current seasons, contemporary seasons, the last ten years. And you know, I think that's certainly something that should be in there. It's something that they have control over themselves, 
and is a, a huge factor in their, um, you know, their overall performance and their contributions to the team. Let's uh, shift over to first base for a little bit. First base pretty low on the defensive spectrum. How much value can even a great defensive first baseman add to his club? You know, it's a surprising amount. Um, what we found that uh, certain first basemen, although it doesn't get, uh, the media doesn't tend to focus on this aspect of defensive play at first base, but we found that certain first basemen have substantially more range than other first basemen. And that's not a huge surprise, but what is surprising is the impact of this. You can find a a Mark Teixeira or an Albert Pujols who can save their team 20 runs just with their range compared to an average first baseman. And you have the Prince Fielders of the world, the Ryan Howards, who um, are great hitters and are certainly valuable members of the team, but uh, they're costing their team 10 runs a year on uh, on average with their, their lack of range at first base. And, you know, they might be able to scoop balls out of the dirt fine and they might present a nice target over there for the infielders to throw to, but based on the data we have and the research we've done, that's a smaller piece of, of the larger puzzle. How about with second baseman? Is something like the ability to turn a double play factored into their calculations? It's in our defensive run save system. We have a separate component um, in addition to the plus minus system evaluating their range and ability to turn batted balls into outs. We have a double play component for middle infielders. Um, their ability to both start double plays effectively as well as turning double plays as pivot men. As we move over to shortstop, I want to ask you about Derek Jeter. <laughs> Jeter universally ranks as a poor defender uh, across all of the defensive systems. He ranks very poorly. Uh, some people have a problem with this. Tell me why Jeter is a below average defensive shortstop. You know, it's it feels uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time, a lot of words, a lot of um, digital ink on Derek Jeter's defense. And when uh, we continue to find new things, new ways that uh, to show evidence that they're <laughs> below average. One thing that we did in the most recent Fielding Bible published uh, last spring, Volume 3, um, we did a study comparing Derek Jeter to Brendan Ryan. And what we found was uh, from roughly the shortstop position all the way up the middle, Derek Jeter and Brendan Ryan were almost play-for-play play identical. There was maybe one run of difference, if I recall, um, over th- from the normal shortstop position all the way to his left up the middle, that whole thing, very little difference between the two. There was a tremendous difference between them um, going to the, to the shortstop's right, into the hole towards third base. Um, that's where Jeter makes his famed jump throw. But uh, if you look at a lot of video of Jeter and Brendan Ryan looking at, at those plays in particular, what you find is Brendan Ryan tends to get over there in the hole. He gets to the ball a little bit quicker than Jeter. He plants his feet and makes a strong throw, whereas Jeter makes a, a very acrobatic play. But in the end, it doesn't get as many guys out. He doesn't get the ball to first in time to, uh, to retire as many runners. So um, that's where the difference really adds up. It shows, it holds up in the numbers, and, and you can, when you look at the video evidence, it's paired with the numbers, it's pretty uh, convincing, com- pretty compelling evidence. And, and the fact that Jeter's numbers by any number of defensive systems has been uh, negative, has been, he's been a below average defender for many, many years is, is overwhelming in my opinion. I agree, and I think the reason why some people have a problem with it is because his poor defense isn't necessarily right in your face. Sometimes we see poor defense, and we don't have to look too hard. I remember when Chuck Knobloch couldn't throw the ball to first base anymore, and he kept throwing the ball over first base. It was a huge problem, and it was right in front of our face. It was easy to see. I think of shortstops like Uneski Betancourt or Jose Offerman back in the day, who were poor defensive players that booted a lot of balls, and it was easy to see that they were below average. Mm-hmm. 
with Jeter, I think the problem is the plays, the balls that he gets to, he handles fine. But I, I sort of equate Jeter's defense to like a, a, a test. If you're doing a test where you have 100 questions and you have a certain amount of time to answer them, if you only answer 65 questions, even if you get those 65 questions right, you get the other ones wrong. The other 35, you're credited as a miss. That would equate to a D. If someone answers all 100 questions but only misses on 25, they missed more balls than Jeter. If, for example, they missed more questions on the test, but they got a 75. That's a C. That's better. Yeah, that's a great analogy. That's a fantastic example. Some of the, the rhetoric with defensive red, uh, metrics, some of the, I, don't, I don't feel like they've gained true mainstream acceptance. Do you feel like it's because people can't necessarily see the effect of what an average player is doing compared to that baseline um, in a game-to-game basis? I think that's part of it. I think uh, I do think we are making progress. I think it's it's slipping into the mainstream. I think um, you know just to use one example of, of a company we work with is ESPN. They um, have done a great job of not only using our information but a lot information from a lot of different sources uh, with advanced metrics such as wins above replacement. Um, that uh, that it is slipping into the mainstream. I think the defensive part to to address the second part of your question. Um, the defense, defensive part is harder to see. There's, it is tougher to measure because you can't see it on a game-by-game basis. You, uh, I think you can see it a little bit better when you look at hundreds of plays over the course of the year. Uh, you can pick out the ones. You can pick out the examples um, that, that it really starts to add up. But it is a little bit smaller scale, and it's, it's harder. It's not measured by conventional statistics. We can't measure defense very accurately by just assists and putouts. You know, that's heavily dependent on the opportunities that each fielder was presented with. But when we when we collect a little bit more information, that's it's harder to collect and therefore it's it's harder to be um, it's less available publicly. But if you rely on that information behind the scenes and and with a little bit of a delay, we can get you some pretty good estimates of of how the fielder did on that that particular play or that game or um, season to date even. So it, it is relying on a little bit larger samples. It's reliant on things that your eyes can't necessarily identify right off the, right off the bat. You don't necessarily, um, you can tell, well, this guy made a, a few diving plays. Those are the ones that really jump out at you. But the ones where the guy um, puts himself in a good position before the ball is even pitched, if the guy gets a good read off the bat, that's something that between the crack of the bat and the, the player, uh, the, the camera changing angles, you might not even see the read that the guy got off um, off the crack of the bat, and that's really what enabled him to make the catch. Um, it's those kinds of things that even scouts, honestly, have some trouble picking up from time to time of getting the reads off the bat um, and judging the difficulty of a play, just because it's it's easy to be fooled. And I think that does, as you as you say, I think it does make it harder to to identify with the defensive metrics, especially when they they don't confirm exactly what you think on your first glance. Let's move over to third base. Tell me how you account for the defensive shift. Oh, great question. Um, that's something we've been actively reevaluating. I think in in 2012, uh, we took a few steps in that regard. We we made a, a change in our defensive run save system and our plus minus system that takes shifts out of individual players' uh, ratings because at Baseball Info Solutions, we've been tracking shifts for quite a few years now. And we made the switch to take them out of individual player ratings. And instead, we actually do an evaluation on a team level. So rather than giving Brett Laurie credit for making a play over in right field, which you can argue all day about what the appropriate level of credit is there, um, but the reality is it was a team decision that allowed him to make that play. It wasn't a, a Brett Lowry decision. It wasn't that he made a great play. It was 
that the team employed a, a team defense, a, a defensive alignment, a shift to try to get that out and was effective or wasn't effective. Um, so we have a, our own little team shift run save now that helps us evaluate the the effectiveness of the shift and the impact on the team's bottom line, which can amount to, in the case of the, the more aggressive shifting teams, can be a dozen runs or more over the course of a season. Well, let's talk about that. How effective is the shift overall? Well, we found our research, we did some more research on this in the Fielding Bible Volume 3, and, and we continue to do further research on this. Um, the shift is an effective strategy, we found. Um, you know, it can, be, it can be fought by the hitter and by the approach that the hitter takes. I think we found that hitters are generally reluctant to change their approach at the plate to combat the shift. They're, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a pride thing. Uh, maybe it really just throws them off their game. And if they, if they change their approach when there's a shift on, maybe it also throws off their approach when there's no shift on. And they can't, they can't um, delineate, they can't separate their two approaches. Um, you know, honestly, if you're a team shifting, that's exactly what you want. Don't you want the guy thrown off his game too? Um, but what we found is that it takes um, in the neighborhood of 30 points off of batting average on ground balls and short line drives. Uh, and we found that it can amount to 10 runs or more over the course of a year if it's employed uh, as often as it should be. And, and frankly, we believe that shifts should be employed a lot more often than they are right now. Um, you find some teams like the Rays, the Brewers, the Indians who are shifting a lot. But um, there's 27 other teams out there who aren't shifting anywhere near as often as they, as they really could. Uh, against the, the number of hitters that they really could be shifting against. Um, and then another thing that uh, we've kind of started shedding some light on is shifting rather than just simply based on the hitter, but based on other factors such as the count, the pitch type that's coming, uh, and the location of the pitch. What we found is pitches away, pitches, um, you know, fastballs, and uh, when a hitter is uh, ahead in the count, Oh, sorry, behind in the count, they tend to go the other way a little bit more. But if you're if you're up 3-0, 3-1 on a hitter and you're going to throw him an off-speed pitch over the you know middle of the plate or the inside of the plate, any of those factors make the guy, the hitter, is a lot more likely to pull the ball. All of this is intuitive, but what we've found is um, simply a 3-0, 3-1 count can make a difference of 20% on a guy's pull rate on ground balls. And it puts him, it takes a, the average right-handed hitter and turns him into an extreme pull hitter on the scale of an Albert Pujols for right-handed batters, or if it's a left-handed batter, it would be the scale of a Carlos Pena or a, or a Ryan Howard who pulled, you know, close to 90%, 88-90% of their ground balls in short line drives. Um, so even the average hitter, there are situations where I think a shift is appropriate um, if you've got a coordinated effort. And it's, it's uh, not traditional, so it's, it's a risk. It's something different. But for the teams who are willing to, uh, to take that chance to gain the advantage, there's there's ground to be taken. Do you think that the teams that aren't taking advantage of it, the majority of the teams that aren't looking at things like shifting in counts or shifting at different counts or for different batters or for writers, for righties, I think for a lot of times we see shifts as lefty only. Mm -hmm. um, is that just because it's the old baseball mentality of this isn't the way we do things? This isn't the way we did it in 1890, so this isn't going to be the way we do it now. You know, I think that's that's a large part of it. I think um, we've seen some, a lot of progress, though. Um, I think the Rays are one example of a team that, from the front office all the way down to Joe Madden, all the way down to the players, they are as unified as possible. On, they're all on the same page. Um, they talk about it. They practice it in spring training. If you watch any of their spring training games, you see them employing shifts even more often than they do during the regular season. They're practicing it, um, which I think is great. 
you find other teams that um, that are doing similar things. Uh, there's a lot of teams. In fact, the number of shifts increased. It actually doubled by our numbers from 2011 to 2012. Uh, the number of shifts on balls in play doubled. Uh, I think that's evidence that teams are kind of figuring this out. I think they are being exposed to it more now that, you know, it's kind of a um, follow the leader kind of thing where one team's doing it and they're effective with it. It doesn't hurt them too badly. Then, then more teams are going to pick up and start doing it more often. And there's some teams who still are reluctant to shift on anybody. Um, it's still just a, uh, you know, it rubs against their tradition or what they, what they did when they were playing or, or when they were coaching before or what happened in the 1890s and baseball tradition. And I think, I think if, you know, for the things in baseball that are, that are trends that are really worthwhile and productive, I think everyone will eventually get on board. I think the, the quick adapters have some, uh, a competitive advantage for that time that they have that, that, you know, between, before everybody else catches up. Um, but, uh, but I do think there's a lot of progress being made. Moving on to the outfield, tell me about how calculating outfield defense differs from infield defense. So for outfielders, we look at um, a couple of components. We look at the plus-minus system, as we have with every other position except for the catchers, uh, and that evaluates their ability to, to catch fly balls and line drives. Uh, we also have a component, what we call outfield arms, their ability to control the advancement of opposing base runners. Are they throwing guys out, but also are they intimidating runners from even taking an extra base in the first place? There are certain guys who don't rack up high assist totals, frankly, because no one, everyone knows about them and they're not going to run on them. Um, it's those guys with those reputations that are saving their team's runs without even throwing the ball, without throwing anybody out, saving them te- their team's runs by preventing extra bases. So um, that's, a, that's a pretty major component. And then we also have good plays and misplays, runs saved, that uh, for outfielders, a couple of the, the components include things like how they handle balls off of the wall. Um, so if you have a, a guy who's playing in left field at Fenway Park, how often, how does he do handling the green monster? Does he play the ball off the green monster better or worse than other guys who play in Boston, the, the visiting team and, uh, and other left fielders who've played it, you know, for the Red Sox um, and other walls around baseball? Um, so that turns out to be pretty interesting. You know, there's certain guys who have a habit, um, whether they play for the Red Sox or not, of playing that wall really well or not playing the wall well. And those are the kinds of things we've started to uncover with our good plays, misplays, run safe for outfielders. A lot of attention has been given to park effects. I think we know that players tend to hit differently if they're hitting in Texas rather than San Diego. There's pitcher parks and there's hitter parks. Are there defensive parks? Are there parks where players play better at defensively across the board? Our research has found that certain parks can have more plays made from time to time. What's unclear, um, our research showed that this, uh, this effect is pretty small in the grand scheme of things. It's a, you know, maybe a 1% or 2% difference. Um, but it's also unclear how sustainable this is. Uh, what we found is that certain parks can, be, can have a park effect of you know, maybe a 5% difference in a given year, but then the next year it might be 3% in the other direction. Um, so there's a, there's a limitation on how reliable that, that information is, even in full seasons of information. Even when you have a whole 81 games in an individual ballpark, you need more than that to really, um, as with offensive park effects for home runs and for runs. You need more than really one season to be able to get a good idea of how a particular park plays in that regard. Um, And we haven't found any compelling evidence in our opinion um, that suggests that there's a a substantial 
um, park effect in terms of overall defensive run save numbers. Obviously, there are some intricacies of every park. There are certain things, certain maybe there's a, a, a light post that happens to get in your eyes at a certain angle or there's a wall to deal with or certain wind currents that come into play. Um, and those are those are certainly a part of defense. And I'm sure every outfielder in baseball is considering all of those, every park he's looking at. Um, but we have a, a less direct way to measure that right at this point. We don't have a, you know, if we had wind velocities and how each batted ball is being affected inch by inch by the wind, or if we had, um, you know, some more information, maybe we'd be able to measure those more directly. But with the ways that we have now, we haven't, we haven't found too much evidence for, for significant differences. Every year, the Fielding Bible honors the best defensive players at every position. Let's go over the winners from 2012 real quick. At catcher was Yadier Molina. First base was Mark Teixeira. Second base, Darwin Barney. Shortstop, Brendan Ryan. Third base, Adrian Beltre. Left field, Alex Gordon. Center field, Mike Trout. Right field, Jason Hayward. And at pitcher was Mark Burley. Mm -hmm. Who were the clear-cut winners of the group and who had the most competition or debate surrounding them? Good question. You know, last year we actually had several um, clear-cut winners. We had... um, Mark Burley has established himself as clearly the best uh, defensive pitcher in baseball. He is not only excellent at fielding his position, as we talked about earlier, but he also shuts down the running game um, in a way that few other pitchers in baseball can match. Um, that combination of skills is unparalleled. Um, with uh, you know, Jake Westbrook might be the only other one in the conversation in that regard, but uh, but Burley has been so good in both of those regards for so long that he's uh, pretty f- clear-cut favorite. Yadier Molina is another one who has won. Um, I, he's won five Fielding Bible awards out of uh, you know the years that he's been in the league, uh, which is pretty remarkable. Um, he had a one-year hi- hiatus in which Matt Weeters uh, took it in 2011, but uh, but Molina bounced back. His caught stealing numbers improved last year. His overall defensive numbers improved in 2012, and and he reclaimed the award. Um, there were some interesting ones as well. I was unsure if. Uh, if Mike Trout or Michael Bourne, both excellent defensive center fielders, were going to emerge in center field. Um, Brendan Ryan has been maybe the best defensive shortstop in baseball, but he put it all together in 2012 and claimed his Fielding Bible Award. Um, his A lot of the competition was a little bit weaker this year with Tulowitzki being injured and, and less effective. Um, you know, Darwin Barney was a little bit of an interesting selection at second base as well. There's a lot of great second basemen out there, um, and Barney had that great run um, with without making an error almost the entire season, but uh, but he he had great range and he had a um, the best ability at converting batted balls into outs so ground balls he he fielded ground balls in both directions very well um, and his numbers came out on top and and the voters agreed based on what they observed and between the numbers and their own observations they gave him the award as well. I want to mix it up a little bit. We are used to average players having an above-average offensive season. Sometimes a player greatly exceeds his track record. Most of the time afterwards, he regresses to his norm. We all know this and are comfortable with that. But when a player goes above his track record or significantly below his track record with defense, Mm -hmm. everyone seems to scream that there's an error with the calculations. Is that just another example of the sniff test gone wrong? You know, I think think it's valid to some extent to wonder why why there are so many fluctuations. I think, um, you know, it's valid. It's perfectly valid concerns. I think, though, that um, players do have fluctuations from year to year. I think uh, when we get closer to this data, we find more and more anecdotes of, um, I was just thinking the other day about Pablo Sandoval, for instance. 
The one year uh, in 2011, he showed up for spring training significantly lighter in you know the, the stereotypical best shape of his life. Um, but it also, if you talk to Giants fans, they say he looked so much more agile that year. He looked more athletic. He was rangier to both sides. Um, and he had a great defensive year. He had, his numbers supported that completely. The next year, spring training came around. He showed up a little bit heavier. Uh, and his numbers dropped right back off. He went from a below-average player uh, at third base to an above-average player and back to a below-average player. This year, supposedly, his, his weight's gone up even further. So I, I'm kind of interested to see if his numbers are going to drop off even more than they did from 11 to 12. And uh, just little anecdotes like that. They're small samples, and we try not to take any one of them too seriously. But the more we work with this and the more that um, you know, other companies look at our numbers as well, such as ESPN, they work with these on a on a smaller level, on an individual player level, and they watch them, they monitor them closely, we're finding that more and more these match up with observations from scouts, completely independent observations from scouts, from uh, from people who know the game, from coaches, um, and from fans. They see things and they notice these differences, and, and I think it's it's completely reasonable to uh, expect and, uh, and to understand that players have year-to-year defensive fluctuations just as they do um, at the plate or on the mound. DRS is the defensive system used by Baseball Reference, which means Baseball Info Solutions provides the defensive numbers Baseball Reference uses to calculate wins above replacement. Do you think a player's defense is being weighted properly with regards to a player's overall value? Yeah, you know, I do think so. I think um, that's the beauty of converting everything to runs, to the common currency there. We can translate um, one scale to another, and we can add them together and, and draw meaningful conclusions. Um, and what we find is that offensive value can vary, um, you know, from player to player a certain amount and that pitching value in terms of runs can vary a certain amount. That defense tends to, the difference between the best defensive player and the worst defensive player isn't as substantial as the best offensive player and the and the worst offensive player and the same with pitchers. But uh, what we, you know, it, it feels about right. It passes the sniff test um, and uh, and we have a, a calculation and a, and a basis, a common currency that we can base, we can base our decision and our, um, you know, to confirm that, I guess. So we have both an objective and a, and a subjective uh, kind of confirmation of, of defensive evaluations and where they stand now. When general managers evaluate a player's defense or a player's defensive value, are they using systems based on DRS or UZR? How are front offices evaluating defense? I think everyone's going to be a little bit different. I think, um, I think there's a number of front offices out there who are taking uh, systems like defensive run saved. I think there are also a number of front offices that have their own internal systems um, uh, for defense as well as every other component of, of player value, really. And I think that uh, they factor all of that into account. I think they factor their scouts' opinions into account. I think they factor their own observations. They factor the um, defensive metrics. They factor their own defensive metrics. Um, certain front offices are going to weight certain pieces of that more heavily than others. And, and that's fine. You know, certain organizations are, general managers are, are allowed to do whatever they want. And that's what, why they're in that role to make the decision based on the, on the information that they can, uh, they can surround themselves with. So, uh, I think it's a mix from one front office to another. I don't think there's any front office that weights, um, any piece of evaluation exactly the same. Um, and I think that's okay though. 
Is there a traditional aging curve where you see a steep decline with defense? With offense, we know that a player's peak tends to be between 26, 27, 28, 29. And once they hit 30, there tends to be a, a decline. That tends to be the case with pitchers as well. Do you find a similar trend with defense? Uh, that's something we'd like to study a lot more, honestly. Um, we've been collecting our defensive run save data. We have it for 10 years now. Um, and we're starting to get enough information, enough years of data that we could start tracking these things and getting some better answers. I know there have been some studies out there on this, and um, I think from my summary of the current information available, as well as uh, some intuition, some conversations with others, that I think that uh, the players tend to peak a little bit earlier in defense. I think the skill sets required for good defensive play, um, it's, it's a little bit different set of skills than offense or for pitching. And, uh, you know, there's still a certain amount. There's a learning curve. If you have a guy move into a new position, I think there is a learning curve there that will uh, will throw off his his aging curve for defense. But, um, you know, I would say that there is an aging curve. Maybe the peak is somewhere around 24, 25. But if you also presented compelling evidence that it was uh, somewhere around 28, 29, I wouldn't. We're at the point at this. We're at the point in this research where. Nothing would surprise me. I think there's a lot more that we should do on this. What's the next big thing or advancement with defensive metrics? Great question. Um, I think we've alluded to a couple of them uh, earlier in this. I think evaluation of the shift and, in general, separation of positioning from range. I think uh, we do a pretty good job of evaluating overall positioning plus range right now, but we only have um, somewhat of an, uh, some ability to separate the two. And I think there is there is value in being able to separate uh, what is positioning and what is range because one of those is a lot coach a lot more coachable than the other one is, um, and they're entirely different skill sets, the mental as opposed to the the physical. Um, so that would be one area. I think uh, catcher uh, catcher defense is another one that that we've made a few strides on, but there's certainly a lot more to to do. I think uh, pitch framing is one of those areas that some people have made some. I've done some great work on, uh, frankly, and I think there's more to be done there. I think there's uh, more research to be done in terms of uh, isolating the individual components that factor into uh, whether a pitch is called a ball or a strike, and whether the catcher has complete co- control over all of that, or uh, whether the you know how much the pitcher or the batter or the umpire are individually responsible for. Um, those are the those are probably the big two that I would be most interested in seeing. You've been listening to Ben Jedlovic. Ben is the Vice President at Baseball Info Solutions and co-author of The Fielding Bible, Volume 3. You can give Ben a follow on Twitter at Ben Jedlovic. That's J-E-D-L-O-V-E-C. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me.